Welcome to Drilling Deep. I'm your host, John Kingston. We are at the place where we talk about oil, which is very much on everybody's minds these days as its price continues to climb, dragging the price of diesel along with it. But we also talk about another subject of the day here on Drilling Deep each week. This week, we're going to make a switch and talk about choo-choo trains. We've got a longtime rail industry expert, Jim Blaze, with us, a longtime friend of Freightways. And he's going to talk about the planned merger of Kansas City Southern with Canadian National, CN, creating a giant that goes from Canada all the way down to Mexico. How is that going to impact the rail ecosystem? He's going to discuss his views. As I record this, since I did my prior podcast, the price of WTI crude is up about $2 per barrel, and the price of ultra-low sulfur diesel on the CME Commodity Exchange is up $0.05 per gallon. In one week, that is a lot. The biggest debate in oil right now seems to be just about how out of balance the market will be by the end of the year. Hang on as we try to talk some numbers without crushing you with those numbers. As you can imagine, when the pandemic first hit, the balance between supply and demand was enormous. It led OPEC and its non-OPEC allies to cut production 9.7 million barrels per day in April of last year, as it tried to chase down a drop in consumption that, at its lowest, far exceeded that number. A cut of this magnitude was unprecedented. That reduction was scaled back by 2 million barrels per day in August, as the global economy began to recover from the worst of the pandemic. Then at the end of last year, they added a little more. And then these last three months, they've added even more. Right now, OPEC and OPEC Plus is in the process of adding 2.1 million barrels per day back to the market. That will be done through July. But after that, there are no plans for any further increases. But from the perspective of consumers, that is a problem. You can look at supply and demand in many different ways if you're trying to get kind of a quick hit on it. But I've always thought that the first glance should go to something known as the OPEC call. The OPEC call is particularly useful if you want to know about supply and demand without going through a huge exercise of looking at a massive number of a massive number of data points. So here's how you get the OPEC call. The estimate of the call comes from the monthly report of the International Energy Agency. You get it by first taking estimates of global oil demand. Then you subtract from that estimates of what all the countries of the world besides OPEC are expected to produce. Then you subtract a category known as OPEC NGLs, which is the OPEC production of natural gas liquids, things like propane and butane. Those products are actually in the global demand number, which is total petroleum, not just crude oil. What you have left is the OPEC call, the amount of oil that OPEC needs to produce so that supply balances with demand. As we went into 2020, all the models showed that demand was going to be well over supply as the year progressed. The pandemic took care of that pretty quickly. Now there's the opposite. As the global economy ramps up, the OPEC call for this quarter is a little over 28 million barrels per day. For the whole year, it's expected to average 27.3 million barrels per day. And what did OPEC produce in April? The last month for the, I should say, the latest month for which data is available. According to S&P Global Platts, OPEC produced 25.28 million barrels per day. That is anywhere from two to two and a half million barrels per day under demand. The enormous buildup of, of inventories that was created by the pandemic is now back down to normal levels. It's gone. And you've got a forecast for the rest of the year where supply is likely to be completely inadequate to meet demand and OPEC has no plans to add supply beyond July. Why? It's easy to say that they just want higher prices, but prices that get too high always make OPEC nervous. Those high prices tend to incentivize more production, 
they discourage demand, and it encourages shifting into other fuels. So what OPEC is doing is not just a case of wanting to see the price rise. They say they are worried about demand because of COVID, that they foresee the possibility of more reduced economic activity as a result of the virus, and maybe that's true. But what they're really worried about is Iran. There are ongoing talks between Iran and Western nations about reviving the Iranian deal. Those talks also raise the prospect of more Iranian oil being put on the market as sanctions end. The amount of oil coming out of Iran already has been rising, despite the sanctions. In April, it was 2.43 million barrels a day. That was the highest in quite some time. The problem is that nobody really has any idea how much oil Iran could bring onto the market if the sanctions end. The country's oil minister recently said that production could go up above 6 million barrels per day. That'd be another 3.5 million barrels a day over what's being produced now. Regardless of what it goes to, you can see why OPEC isn't real excited about putting more oil onto the market after the current ease increase is done with. If there's a gap between, if there's a gap of two to three million barrels per day now between supply and demand and the sanctions come off, Iran could fill that. But nobody knows when that might be or what the figures will be. So that's why the group is holding back. In the meantime, hang on for some higher diesel prices. The weekly DOE EIA price this past week was up just a little bit, but the trends are pulling it higher for now, and there are assuredly some more increases ahead. We're going to get off the roads now. We usually talk usually about something trucking related at this point on uh, Drilling Deep, but we're going to go to the rails. I've been wanting to do this interview for a long time. Specifically, we're going to talk about the recent final announcement of the Kansas City Southern Plan to merge with CN, Canadian National, after KCS first accepted and then rejected an offer to be acquired by Canadian Pacific, CP. That would take the number of Class 1 railroads in North America down to six from seven. That doesn't sound like a big move, but it's huge in the sense that one Canadian railroad will now have a complete Canada-Mexico network and the other won't. So here to talk about it is a longtime friend of FreightWaves, Jim Blaze. Jim has done it all in the railroad business. He worked for Conrail when it was owned by the U.S. federal government. He worked as a regulator. He worked internationally in Africa and Europe. And he's been a go-to consultant working on various railroad mergers. What better person to have to talk about Kansas City Southern, Kansas City Southern acquisition than Jim Blaze? So, Jim, welcome to Drilling Deep. Well, good afternoon to everybody in Freightways and to you, John. And uh, I'll try to live up to that billing. All right. I'm sure you will. Are you surprised with the way things played out with CN being the ultimate winner when you first heard that CP was bidding for Kansas City Southern? Did you assume that CN could not sit by and would have to join in the fray? Uh, that's good. That's really good question. First, I guess I'm not surprised because I have actually written a number of times for Freightways and for Railway Age, my opinion column saying mergers and acquisitions are the DNA of uh, the real estate side of the, being in the railroad business. So the fact that somebody decided to move, in this case, Canadian Pacific, back in March, actually, they probably decided back last year and were secretly putting together the marriage application. Uh, should not come as a complete shock. Uh, and then within 30 days, Canadian Nationals saying, uh-oh, we just can't sit here and let CP steal the, the nugget of Kansas City 7. We we got to counteract. We got to counterbid. Uh, no, I, I think it played out. I think the hand played out like you'd expect the poker game for mergers and acquisitions in railroading to play out. 
Okay. Now, what's going to be the end result? How much this does seem on the surface like a very logical deal to connect to connect Canada and Mexico. Of course, Kansas City Southern has long described itself as the NAFTA railroad uh, with its penetration from the U.S. into Mexico. You link that up now with a railroad that goes up into Canada and you've got this three country span. Uh, What is going to be the impact on service? Well, you know, uh, there's a lot of people have signed up and say they're supporting one carrier over the other, Canadian National versus CP's bids. And uh, I'm kind of surprised at that. Thousands of people have voiced their opinion, and we don't know what the impact is going to be as intended by the two applicants, CN and CP, because they actually haven't filed anything yet that says, here's exactly what we're going to do, and here's what you, Service Transportation Board, has to rule on based on the service improvements, the the public convenience and necessity, public benefits that are to be gained. Uh, We're not going to see those actual filings for some time. So you and I can speculate, John, about uh, which merger might be best and which might have superior service. But I want to make sure that you and our listeners today are aware that well, we're speculating a little bit because the applicants haven't filed the details yet. So based on that speculation, where would you, where would you like to begin? <laughs> well, 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 why don't you bring everybody up to speed? Kansas City Southern has accepted the bid from CN, uh, but there obviously there, there's a significant role here from the Surface Transportation Board, which is a U.S. government agency, to approve it. Can you talk about how that approval process goes? Okay, so the approval process clock usually has a, you know, a one to two year fixed time that the regulators have to adjudicate by. Now, the, um, the clock doesn't actually officially start ticking until you file the merger, official merger application data with all of its documentation and evidence of this is how you intend to fold the companies together. So we are probably looking, in my opinion, at a full year from the time Canadian National, which would be the last of the two carriers that could file, files its application. I don't, I don't expect Canadian National to be in a position to file that kind of detail for another month or two, possibly into July. So we're talking about that nothing is going to take place on the ground until the year mid-year to late year 2022 to possibly 2023. And then it takes two to three years to fully implement these mergers. So that's the timeline looking ahead from the <laughs> regulatory start clock to, uh, you know, when you have a robust new service in place. I'm not sure everybody realizes that that's the clock. Well, and during this time, what, what will be CP's role in this? Will they just simply go on record as, a, as a, uh, being in, 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 I was going to say in favor of it, opposing it? What do they do during this during the STB process? Okay, I'm not going to speak as a lawyer because I don't have any legal background. I have a lot of legal participation I've assisted in, but but I'm not aware. So I, uh, they, so your, our listeners and you have to have to treat what what I say with that kind of uh, you know substance and, and error error band. But as an economist, I'm going to say, if Canadian Pacific believes it has a sounder public public convenience and necessity benefit associated with its bid at a slightly lower price for Kansas City 7 assets, then in my opinion, the only way you get to play fair ball in the ball game that's going to take place in Washington is to file what it would nominally be called an inconsistent application. 
It's inconsistent because uh, the friendly merger deal is going to be between Canadian National and Kansas City Southern, not that the Kansas City Southern Board has approved it. So this is an unfriendly deal, but a reasonable price offer, I believe, from Canadian Pacific. And in order to get a fair hearing in front of the commission, you have to have both cases sitting for them to look at in detail. Will Canadian Pacific file that application or will they just stand on the sidelines and uh, put in memos and uh, documents uh, challenging the Canadian national merger? I don't know. I, some of the reading that I've read from Mr. Creel, who's been interviewed by a number of uh, publications recently from Canadian Pacific, is that he, as the chief executive officer of Canadian Pacific, does intend to participate fully in the hearing. To me, that interprets as they're going to file a, a, an application with all the details of what they want to do, just like CN will, and we'll have two application documents sitting in Washington. But that's my, that's my estimate of what will happen. All right, so let's let's talk about. There's going to be a loser here. Right now, we'll assume it's CP because Kansas City Southern has taken the CN uh, offer. But obviously, as you just pointed out, there's a significant way to go with the Service Transportation Board. So there's a loser. Let's say it's CP. They don't get the Kansas City Southern uh, assets. How hurt are they by this? Do they just simply miss out on that opportunity to have one big rail system? But maybe they've still got a system that does very well. They could have a system that does very, very well, but it's going to be a regional system in the far northern part, northern central plains part of the United States, and the strong in the western provinces of Canada. Relatively weak, though, in the amount of geographic coverage it offers customers in eastern Canada provinces and in the New England area. So um, uh, the way I would look at it as a strategic economist is to, is to say, we always like to uh, rate our railroads in strength to weakness uh, uh, in a list form. And the strongest are the ones with the most geographic coverage. You know, how many more stations and origin destination pair points do you serve? And so the strongest, obviously, is going to be Canadian. Uh, it's going to be Union Pacific and B and Santa Fe, then followed by, and you know, not in any particular order, CSX and, and S. And after this merger is done, the carrier that falls to the bottom of the list is Canadian Pacific, because it's going to be the shortest in terms of coverage. Uh, from a merger acquisition point of view, you don't have a lot of strength for your next strategic move if you're at the bottom of the list. That doesn't necessarily mean you have to be a target or that you have to merge. There are plenty of railroads companies the size of Canadian Pacific after the after a CN Kansas City Southern run, uh, merger, would, which would uh, you know be pretty strong as uh, standalone businesses, but they don't have any way to grow. Uh, their growth is, is limited uh, by their geography profile. So that's that's the comment I would make about Canadian Pacific. Now, counter if for some reason the Service Transportation Board votes a majority votes to say, oh, the public convenience is better served by CP, and we award the franchise to CP and deny the CN merger. I mean, if that were to happen, I guess it would be a surprise. But uh, then Canadian National falls to the bottom of the list, but they're, they have a lot of strong coverage. They go already go down in Louisiana and in the Mississippi area, and they cover, they cover extensively all of Canada in a lot of uh, northern um, U.S. states. So I don't regard, I regard them as a much stronger independent franchise if they were to end up standalone. 
and likely a possibly more desirable candidate for a merger with one of the remaining uh, big four U.S. carriers down here. So, I mean, we're talking degrees of magnitude, though. We're not talking about either one of those carriers going out of business. Is that yeah, clear? Yes, it is clear. Thank you, Jim. But You're let me welcome. ask: is, is there is this such a thing as a a class one railroad like a like a, a CP getting bigger by buying short line railroads? I mean, big bigger short line railroads. Can you kind of you know, of course, the whole history of railroads over the last several years has been class one railroads divesting assets. What about bundling up some sh- smaller assets? Is that is that logical at all, or is that just ridiculous? Uh, no, it, it is logical to a point, but but you have to have connectivity between the the little discrete the short lines you're going to buy. And in fact, John, you you've had, you have uh, remind us all that in fact that's how Canadian Pacific in the United States. Uh, today, uh, how it reaches Kansas City. It, it's basically acquired some of the old Sioux properties, some of the old Milwaukee Road properties, some of the old Chicago Northwestern properties that were at times divided into these available little small for short franchise. So yes, there is a possibility role for that. But in this particular case, they're never going to reach I don't see them cobbling together a short line acquisition program that gets them to the Gulf of Mexico or to the Pacific Ocean on the West Coast of the U.S. That's probably not likely. Right. Now, you noted that there's been no plan uh, filed with the STB, but just in general, on your knowledge of railroad service, how much better service is a system going to be that stretches from Canada down to Mexico? What are the benefits you see without without necessarily knowing the details? uh, How much of an improvement do we have here? Well, I think that basically single line service, eliminating interchanges, interchanges can cause you delays from a couple of hours to maybe a day and a half. There's a cost to, to the railroad that uh, might be, you know, uh, on the order of magnitude, $1,000 per train that's delayed by, per day. Uh, but in the case of shippers, if you mu- multiply the amount of cargo value they got sitting in these train sets, we can be talking about thousands and thousands of dollars of order of delay to their inventory chain. So um, a merger acquisition that basically eliminates these inter- interline changes offers superior uh, origin to destination single line railroad blocking and train maneuvering is valuable from a public service ben- benefit. And if, in fact, it lowers the carrier's cost, the railroad's cost of doing that, and they decide that, oh, well, why don't we share the, the our cost savings with uh, with our customers? Instead of giving this all as dividends and buy, stock buybacks, we'll share some of this and put uh, some of the savings in the pockets of our shippers by lowering our rates. I'm not necessarily saying that that's what the carriers will do, but it is a possibility. So uh, that's the number one. Number two, I think... Uh, Go ahead, John. Yeah, I was going to say congratulations to your dog. He's the first canine that's made an appearance on Drilling Deep. <laughs> I figured it was a matter of time, but anyway, go ahead. <laughs> okay, well, thank you, buddy. <laughs> but he's a, a good police dog. He probably heard some truck two blocks away. Uh, any case, uh, the I think the real uh, benefits are by commodity types. So I see grains, petroleum products, and chemicals as being the real um, strength of why both CN and CP want to put their networks together and tie the Canadian provinces to the the, the highly desirable Mexican market. And intermodal uh, and automobile, yes, but uh, intermodal is questionable. there's, it's. I've seen that essentially um, the intermodal rail growth is kind of stalled 
in face of uh, a very strong trucking market. Will that continue or will they gain strength? I'm not sure. Is there a lot of intermodal trains that basically want to move from, uh, from let's say, uh, uh, places like Calgary to Mexico City? They're going to take advantage of intermodal rail. Nah, nah, I'm not quite sure that that's, that's a highly competitive lane. Uh, the drive the smart market. But that's how I see the real benefits here. And I see the real strength of the market in terms of growth opportunity is, in fact, uh, the Kansas City, Deje, Mexico lines of Kansas City Southern. I think that's what this is all about primarily, because those lines uh, stand to gain a lot of traffic growth and opportunity without adding, without the expense of adding a lot of capital expense to add uh, capacity track down there. Right, but so you seem to be thinking that it was more this, the traffic that's going to benefit the most from this is north to south traffic rather than the other way around. Is that a fair conclusion? Yes, sir. I do believe that. Yes. Okay. Of the other, of the the other big class one railroads, we talk, obviously talked about how the loser of this um, this battle, presumably CP, is going to be impacted by it. How about the other four railroads? Is there any significant impact on from them? Uh, whatever. Well, significant. I, you know, there's going to be dribbles, drabbles, marginal loss of traffic uh, because Kansas City, Mexico, with either CN or CP, is going to have a better franchise. So, BN Santa Fe and Union Pacific each may lose some traffic. What we call traffic diversion to a stronger service network with fewer direct train delays. Uh, but I don't see any real harm to either CSX or Norfolk Southern. Again, I think we have to look at the traffic data studies that are going to be filed in June or July once these two carriers get their acts together and postulated in Washington. I would, uh, however, like to point out one railroad that may suffer extreme harm, and uh, it's in Mexico, and it's the, the Ferromex system which competes within Mexico on a concession basis with Kansas City de Mexico lines. Ferromex is a weaker of the two Canadian uh, Mexican systems. And I think it will be, it will suffer more losses, more traffic losses and revenue loss than will the American uh, f uh, remaining uh, six Class, uh, seven, five class one railroads remaining after this transaction. And and yet we don't hear anything from the Mexican government, rec Mexican regulators. I, I don't, I'm, what I'm surprised is, John, that uh, as a result of uh, Ferromex being um, significantly uh, seeing diverted traffic to a stronger Kansas City to Mexico system, uh, I don't see anybody from the Mexican government say, waving their hand and saying, well, wait a minute, we would like to show up in Washington and plead our public benefit case. There is a huge potential adjustment to the competitive situation here in Mexico. And where do we get a hearing? Why, why is this all being done in Washington if it's an international merger? So we can see how that As plays you pointed out, out there's still quite a yeah, there's, yes. there's still quite some time to go before they'd have to do that. So um, let's talk about railroads in general now. We've only got about a few, a few minutes. Uh, of course, the, the the endless battle between railroads and trucks is driven by a lot of things. One of them is the price of diesel. The price of diesel is at its highest level in a couple of years. Are you seeing that having any, having any impact on railroads right now? No, because essentially uh, everybody's kind of out of capacity, particularly in the intermodal area. They're out of drayage capacities. 
the terminals aren't being cleared out fast enough because either the stevedores or the maritime outside of the or the port managers can't get the stuff in or out for a variety of uh, nominal reasons, labor shortages, etc. So I don't see a lot of railroad growth taking place. Nominally, if things were in a normal condition, John, I would say if we get diesel fuel on the for that the truckers are paying, there's in a four dollars, four fifty, five dollar range per gallon, then we're going to see opportunity for much more intermodal rail long haul uh, gain because that's where the competition on the fuel basis takes place on those long hauls when diesel prices for the truckers gets to be extremely high. But then that's not occurring well, we yet. we still got to wait. Yeah. Yeah, not yet. Well, somebody asked me this morning about that, and I said, you know, remember when those prices were really high, above $4 a gallon, Brent was solidly over, Brent crude oil was solidly over $100, and it's not, it's getting there, but it's still got a ways to go. Yeah. You, uh, and, I, other, you and I are in agreement there, John. Yeah. The other question I wanted to ask was the last time I think we did an, an audio interview was when I hosted Freightwaves Radio on Sirius XM. And we talked about precision railroading. And now it's quite frankly, it's, a, uh, it's, 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 it's in. It's in place. It's not a story of it coming. It's not a story of it well, it's c- continuing to be implemented. But it is the prevailing way of doing business in the railroad, uh, in the railroad sector. How has the sector held up? How well have they absorbed these changes? And are customers benefiting? They were terrified that they weren't going to benefit. What's your verdict on it at, at this point? Well, the two promises that the railroad managers said, we eventually we'll stop putting money into the shareholder pockets of the railroad industry. And we're going to, you're going to see benefits that go into the pockets of the, our customers. You're going to see much faster service, much faster utilization and turn cycles for the rail equipment. And uh, therefore, you're going to want to come back to us. Well, the number of sources, uh, including some discussions by FTR out of Indianapolis last week, have confirmed uh, to to my expectation and, and to that of a number of us who are commentators, economic commentators, that no, we haven't seen precision scheduled railroading translating into precision-like, better schedules, better ETA arrivals and departures and better cycle times for cars. Not yet. So that promise hasn't been delivered, and we're not seeing the utilization of the car fleet yet. So there, there's still a question as to can that occur. The other thing is the railroads it can ease more easily sweat the assets and cut the cut the amount of manpower that they're using, and therefore cut their expense and get their operating ratio up. Uh, when you're going down and doing a cut, but recovery. The railroads are slower at the recovery cycle, particularly with this model that basically constricts how fast they're going to redeploy assets that cost money every uh, on the income statement. So, again, those are two problems that basically are, to me, demonstrating that PSR isn't delivering on the public benefit side yet, although it is a great model for the shareholders of railroad stock. Uh, yeah, it's, it's interesting. I do the freeway story every month on employment levels. When the unemployment number comes out, the employment report, and you, know, you look at the number of people employed in rail today versus where they were a year ago, and it certainly is, it's not down because of a big drop in volume. So uh, that clearly is it because of precision railroads. So, hey, Jim, we want to thank you for joining us on Drilling Deep today. Please come back. I think maybe we'll, next time we talk, you can give yet another review of precision railroading and and uh, and how w- whether it, in fact, is starting to yield the benefits that were promised. Thank you, John, and thank you to your listeners, and everybody be safe. Have have an enjoyable summer. Thank you. You have been listening to Drilling Deep. We are part of the Freight Cash family of podcasts. 
from Freight Waves. I'm your host, John Kingston. You can find us on all the major platforms for podcasts, and we hope that you will join us again. Thank you.